0: All right. Well, welcome back to the final week of our series. We need a king. Um, if you are just joining us this week, or you've been in and out, uh, we've been exploring the life of Israel's most famous king, David, in the books of Old Testament, the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel. And today we've reached the end of his life. And if you've been with us, you can you can say what a life it has been. Indeed, we've explored some powerful lessons from David's life. So we began with his anointing in 1st Samuel 16 which showed us that God doesn't focus on outward appearance. He's most concerned with our hearts and in many ways that's been the theme of the whole series. When David defeated the giant in 1st Samuel 17, we learned that God is more powerful than any obstacle. When David was on the run in First Samuel 18 to 31, we saw that God is with us, and He protects us no matter what happens. In Second Samuel 7, after David ascends the throne, we saw God establish uh, his covenant with David's royal line, which paves the way for our Savior uh, Jesus, to come, King Jesus. Salvation, indeed, belongs to our great God. In 2 Samuel 11 to 20, last week we saw the devastating consequences of sin in David's life. And in the end, David's story, what we saw is that it's it's ultimately not about David, it's about his God who chooses, blesses, and saves the people for his glory. And now we're at the end. David is an old man, and he's going to share his last words with us today. So let me ask you a question. If you could plan your final words, what would they be? If you could plan your final words, what would they be? Now, not everybody gets to do this. Some die suddenly. Uh, But if you could, what would you say? Right, what message would you pass on? As I was thinking about this this week, I discovered that more and more people are giving thought to their final words. In fact, there's a growing interest in holding living funerals. In other words, where people will hold a a goodbye celebration before death occurs. In fact, a famous example was the popular book, Tuesdays with Maury, also a movie. I read that back in college. Um, The author, Mitch Albom, chronicles his time with his 80-year-old college professor who's dying of ALS. Uh, Maury offers Mitch lessons on life as he's dying. So imagine, imagine you're about to pass away, Uh, you've reached the end of your life, you gather all your family and friends together for a celebration of your life, then you get a chance to speak, what would you say? What message would you pass on? That's what David does in, in 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Kings 2. We hear David's last words and we catch a glimpse of his heart. Now, some of you might be listening right now, here, at home, later on, and you might be saying, I, I've never thought of having a living funeral before. That's kind of an interesting idea. And others of you are sitting here saying, I'm terrified. And you're terrified precisely because you don't know what people would say about you. Because, you see, funerals, they have a way of exposing our hypocrisy. We can't hide Our entire lives are laid bare before those who know us best. And for some of us, our public life, how we presented ourselves to outsiders, does not match our private life, what insiders know about us. And I've officiated, I've participated in, I've I've been around enough funerals to know that this is a reality for many people. A parent, a sibling, a spouse, a friend, they die, and then people get up and they offer words of overpraise. They are respected to some extent in the larger community, but their family, those who knew them best, they, get, they have mixed feelings, and their takeaway is this. Those words that were spoken at the funeral uh, did not reflect the true person. Why? Because the public life did not match the private life. Last week, Pastor Dave talked about the gap between our choices and our, and, and our consequences, And for many of us, there's a gap in how people experience us publicly and then how they experience us privately. It may feel like you're living two different lives. There's a dissonance that just gnaws at your soul. And I think David experienced this very much because in one breath, David writes these words of thanksgiving in 2 Samuel 22. He says, the Lord is my rock. My fortress, my savior, my God is my rock in whom I find protection. He's my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. He's my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. What beautiful words of praise and faith. But in another moment, David does what? David commits adultery and murder. He ignores injustices committed by his commanders. His own son rebels against him. And so we're going to see in our passage today that that, that David has some regrets. And as he says his last words, I imagine he's feeling the tension of that gap I just spoke about. He knows some of his private life did not match his public image. And maybe David even feels like a hypocrite. So in today's message, I want to examine David's life and show us how to eliminate this gap between our public and private lives. I want to show us how to build a life of influence so that if you ever have a living funeral, your words will have more weight. Why? Because people will know your integrity, that you were the same person in public and private and so to accomplish this, I want to look at David's final words in 2 Samuel 23 and First Kings 2. In those sections, we see three, three words. First, we see the public word. Then there is the private word. And finally, there is the, the final word. The public word, the private word, the final word. Let's pray as we, as we look at each of those today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my friends who are here today, Lord. Um, I don't know how everybody has walked in this room today. I don't know, uh, for those that are listening, Lord, where they're at, but you do. Lord, you knew. You know know what we're walking through. You know our needs. You know what's going on in, in, in our interior lives, in our hearts, and I pray right now, Holy Spirit, you would meet us where we are. Speak truth to us, Lord. Help us to feel your love and your grace, your encouragement, your conviction, and may we leave today. Transformed for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, first, let's look at David's last public. Statement is king in 2 Samuel's, Samuel 23. Now, most commentators think that Second Samuel chapter 21 to 24 is an epilogue that offers highlights of David's live, life. And in, in the center of those highlights are David's final words that are preceded by a psalm of thanksgiving in chapter 22. Uh, then, 2 Samuel 23, 1 to 7, it gives us an audience to David's final public appearance. We read this. Now, these are the last words of David. This is it, the last words we hear in public. And if you've been with us for the entire series, you've seen David's life, you know, it's he's had ups, he's had downs, it's been it's been complicated. He's had high points, he's had low points, and you're wondering right now, how is old man David going to reflect on everything? Well, if you look at verse 1, we read something really interesting. We read this. It says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet Psalmist of Israel. So I want to draw your attention to a few details in this verse. First, if you if you notice that word oracle in the Old Testament, that word typically means an utterance originating from God. In other words, these are God's words to His people, spoken prophetically through David. Second, this verse highlights David's origins as the son of Jesse, a rather unremarkable beginning. In other words, David came from a family of nobodies, but God made him somebody. He raised him on high. He anointed him. God himself would transform David's family into the royal line of Messiah. And then the third, that phrase, the sweet psalmist of Israel, reminds us that David was the warrior poet who became king. He was an artist. He was a a lover. He was a fighter, all wrapped in one. And he captures the emotional ethos of his people. And we still read his words today, thousands of years later. So he continues in verse 2. It says, the spirit of God speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Now, what a buildup, right? It makes the reader wonder, what's he going to say next? He's going on and on about God speaking. He's on my tongue. He's going to speak. He's the rock of Israel. What's he going to say Now, again, it's clear that God is speaking prophetically through David. And by prophetically, I don't mean that he is foretelling the future. Rather, he is forthtelling the truth directly from God. So notice that a portion of David's final public words come directly from God himself. David has a public image. And so I want to pause for just a second and ask you a question to get you thinking about this. Um, What is your public image? Right how how do outsiders perceive you and me? Because in many ways what we do is we create and then we curate our public image. In other words, we only give people a small window into our lives. We all present ourselves in a certain way in public to people we don't know well, our outsiders. And what do they see? Now you might say, well Pastor Bob, listen, I I I'm not famous. I'm not a public image. I'm not a public figure. I don't have a blue check on Twitter. Uh, I only have a small circle of people who know me. Which fair enough. Okay, some people are more well known than others. However, I would say that all of us have a public image of some kind. And it is an image that we curate to avoid judgment. We want to be seen as a person who has it all together. Now, if you don't believe me, I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, The first is a well-known example you might experience, and that's the example of church. Church. Church people do this all the time. In fact, today, maybe you've walked into this church building thinking you had to act a certain way. And I'll tell you how I know this. Um, I will occasionally go out in public, and I'll meet people uh, that I don't know, and eventually they'll ask me, what do you do for work? And sometimes I will come out and say, I'm a pastor. It's like coming out. Yes, that's what I do. Um, other times I'll be more coy and I'll say things like, yeah, I'm a public speaker. I lead a nonprofit, things like that. And you know why I do that? I do that because as soon as I say I'm a pastor, people act differently. They just do. You know, there, There's a certain way that you think you have to act when a minister is present or, or whoever, right? We curate our public image to act in a certain way to be accepted, our, perce- our perception about uh, being accepted. Now the second example, and, and I was told about this one this week, so this is, this is for the younger folks in here today. Uh, I heard there's a social media app that's all the rage with Gen Z, the younger people. Um, it's called Be Real, okay? Uh, I, I hadn't heard of it, and so I did some research, and here's the basic premise. Legacy social media, things like Facebook and Instagram, encourage people to do that curating of images, you, you choose your most photogenic moments. You can use a filter to touch up the blemishes and make it look so good. Be Real, this is the way they're pitching it, Be Real is different. Here's how the app works. Be Real sends you an alert that it's time to take a picture. So like right now, it would beep and say, you open the app, you got two minutes to take a snap photo, and your, your phone's front-facing camera is going to take a picture of you, So the the idea is that it captures you in this unprepared, you know, real moment. It's very popular with the younger folks here. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting, really interesting, is that I both read and I heard that there will be people who lament, lament of the fact that their be real moment, the moment that the notification was sent, did not occur at their best moment. And so you say things like, Why didn't why wasn't my be real moment 30 minutes ago? It was so great. They're getting upset that you can't curate your image. We've been trained to think this way. So let me tie the examples together. What if right now was your be real moment, right? You got a notification, be real. Are you able to be real at church or do you curate your image? Because sometimes we want people to catch us doing the right thing rather than seeing the real us. Our public life does not always match our private life. Now, why doesn't it? Now, I'm not suggesting everything in private must be public. Certain information should be given only to those you trust. You can feel more freedom around those you trust. And some of that comes from maturity, but we should also not seek to be two completely different people in public and private. In verses 2 to 7, David's public words show us how to live well and honestly before God and others. And when it comes to public life, I believe all of us want to be people of influence at some level. And David's final words show us how to cultivate this. David shows us that an influential public life requires, first, a prophetic voice. A prophetic voice. So God, you already saw, through David, is speaking truth to his generation, And today I think God wants to do the same through us. He calls us to use our voices to confront the moral wrongs in our world. He calls us to capture people's hearts with the better story and message of the gospel through our words. What influence do you have in public life? And I understand it's hard. I get it. It's becoming harder. But our faith is not meant to simply be private. God continues through David in verse 3. It says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth from a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So God doesn't just call us to use a prophetic voice, he wants us to exercise whatever public leadership capacity we have to bless others. And so the second part of an influential public life is a kingly vision, a vision of leadership of some level. All of us have influence, whether it be in home or work or church. David's words show us, first, we should rule justly. In other words, we should use whatever God-given authority we have well. And authority is meant to be a good thing. Now today, in modern culture, authority gets a bad rap. We always think that authority is a negative thing. And and why is that? It's because people have abused their authority. So David offers a counterexample in verse 6. He says, uh, But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. This verse right here describes evil rulers. And they may be kings or queens or leaders Whatever, but their influence is not positive. They must be thrown away or cast aside, he says. Influential leaders, second, fear God. And that means that we know he has authority over us. Too many leaders think that they are the final authority. God is the final authority. And then if we fear God and we rule justly, it's then that we have an impact. Take notice of that phrase, morning light. What a beautiful image. Right? When was the last time you were up so early in the morning that you caught the first glimpse of the sun? Right? It's beautiful. There was darkness, and then there's light, and then it slowly blends into a cloudless morning where the sun is shining in all of its radiance. That's what it's like, David says, when we exercise God-honoring leadership and authority in our world. It's like rain showers causing the grass to, to sprout up and grow. In other words, We bless those around us when our public life is directed and influenced by God. Is your public life influenced by the fear of God? Or are you living in the fear of man? Now in verse 5, there's a shift in David's words. He stops speaking prophetically and responds to God's words. We read this. It says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper any help. Uh, He will will not cause to prosper, will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? So verse 5 points back to 2 Samuel 7. David is still in awe of that promise, that covenant that God made with his family. And now, at this point, David's been through the ringer. He has sinned greatly, his family has made a lot of mistakes, and still, at the end of his life, he's blown away by God's promise to him. He's clinging to that unbreakable covenant that God made with that royal line. And so that truth points to something else we need for an influential public life. We need, uh, thirdly, a secure vocation. A secure vocation. He says, God has ordered all things secure, now, I use that word vocation um, because it rhymes, but also because in the Latin, it literally means calling, calling. What is your calling in life? That's what David's getting at here. God has called his family to something. They are trying to walk in that calling as best they can. If you want to have an influential public life, you need a vocation. You need a secure calling from God. And and. This is an application for everybody, but I want to speak to two specific groups for just a moment here. First, if you are a teenager or a young adult in here, you are or you will ask the question, what is God's will for my life, right? What is my calling? And that's an important question to ask in your late teens, in your early 20s, as you're praying that God would show you where to invest the the time of your life so that you could be influential, now, secondly, the second group is that of retirees. When middle, li- middle life has its challenges, uh, you know, you, you, your callings are pretty clear in middle life in many ways. You have work, you have family, you have your ministry, but when your career winds down, this can be a hard time in life. And I've had a lot of conversations with people about this recently because work offers purpose, right? This season requires us to revisit our calling. I want to recommend a resource entitled An, Uncom- An, Uncom- "An Uncommon Guide to Retirement," and I love I love his uh, his subtitle here: "Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life." I went a uh, fair warning. I went to seminary with the author Jeff Hainan. Uh He does a wonderful job of helping us think through questions of purpose and vocation after retirement. So I, I commend that resource to you. Now, for anybody who's trying to discern your calling or your vocation, I want to suggest two more action steps. Uh, first, if your calling is unclear, take an inventory of your circumstances. God allows certain things in our lives for a reason. You know, over the summer, I, I did an exercise where I looked at my calling. I looked at my circumstances, and what I discovered is that I have three main areas of how this plays out. So first, my calling is to um, be a, a loving husband to my wife, Amanda. That's a calling. Second, I'm called to be a father to my children. And then third, I am specifically called to be a pastor in a certain context. And each of those callings have a public and a private component. How we exercise our influence in those callings is impacted by our circumstances. Pastor and author Pete Scazzaro says it this way He says, We find God's will for our lives in our limitations. I'll say that again. We find God's will for our lives in our limitations. So for me, I have a young family right now, I have a special needs son. I have a context that I'm called the pastor in. Those limitations, whatever they are in your life, show us the granular nature of the calling that God has given to us. Now, second, if your influence is unclear, you need to take an inventory of your circles. God has placed us in a time and place. He's brought certain people into our lives to influence us for his glory. Who is in your circle? Now, your public life may include people that you meet in person, Or nowadays, online. I mean, if you put words on the internet, they're public. Author Askinis, who we just had at our Underground Sessions event, writes this in his book Carpe Diem Redeemed. He says, God calls us in the flux and flow of time and history. And the gift of being able to seize the day flowers from a way of life that weaves together three principles. First, walk before God. Second, read the signs of the times, and then finally, serve God's purpose in our generation. By the way, if you missed the underground sessions, it was awesome. Uh, we're going to be sending out a link soon so you can view the event if you were not there. But the reality here is that we all have a public life, which should match our private life. If you, have an influ- if you want to have an influential public life, you have to walk with God And when you do, you will serve his purpose in your generation, in your context to which he has placed you. So David had a lot to say in his final public statement, but did his public word match his private word? And to answer that question, we're going to have to jump to 1 Kings chapter 2 and see what he says in private to his son Solomon. So that's second, the private word. David's life spills over into the beginning of 1 Kings, and we read this in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, now King David was old and advanced in years. So the narrator's letting us know that David has reached the end of his life. He's likely 70 years old here, which for the record in modern times is not that old. Um, but back then, they didn't have you know everything we got today. Uh, David is battle-weary and tired. It's time to think about who his successor is going to be. And most of 1 Kings 1 is about this power struggle between David's sons, Adonijah, and Solomon. And David chooses Solomon. And in 1 Kings 2, we see David offering this private word to his son. This is what it says. Uh, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. So picture this scene. David knows he's about to die and he has a chance to intentionally say some final words to his son. He calls Solomon to come close and what does he say? He says, be strong, show yourself a man. Now other translations use the phrase take courage and show yourself a man. David knows the challenges of being king and he's passing on his wisdom to his son before he dies. So the second phrase Show yourself a man is a really interesting one in our day. What does it mean to be a man? One of the elements of 1 and 2 Samuel we didn't get to cover was David's mighty men, right? In in 2 Samuel 23, the author lists 37 who were part of this brigade and valiantly fought with David. There was Abishai, the chief of the mighty men, who killed 300 with a spear in one battle, He also saved King David from a giant later in his career. And you ask, is that what it means to be a man? Our world has a lot to say about men these days. So we hear a lot about things like toxic masculinity. But what is good masculinity? That's the question I was asking myself this week. And so let me speak to the men for just just a few moments here. Um, Because it starts, good masculinity starts with men who can discern the secular voices from the scriptural truths. Author and pastor John Tyson wrote a book entitled The Intentional Father, which I highly recommend. Um, The subtitle is this, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character. And I love that because I think a man must have both courage and character. While the whole book is intensely practical, in chapter 11, he specifically highlights six roles men need to master as they grow toward maturity. So let me briefly highlight each. First and foremost, there's the role of disciple. We are called to be a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if I were to ask you the question today, have you been discipled well into the Christian faith, how many men would raise their hands? Probably too few. And if I were to specifically ask you, did your father disciple you into the Christian faith? I think even fewer would raise their hands, which I think is a problem. And if we're going to have men of courage and character showing ourselves to be men, we must first and foremost be able to answer the key questions of faith like, who is God? What is the gospel? What is the biblical story? How do I read the Bible? Not enough men can answer those questions well. Instead, our view of masculinity is informed by cultural expectations, not scriptural prescriptions. The second category he talks about is that of lover. Lover, And what he means by this is if you want to show yourself a man, you need to learn how to relate to women well. How do you love your wives? How do you, how do you, how do you honor people that are around you? Too few men know how to do this today, and it's caused a lot of societal problems. Third, there's the category of leader. Men need to learn to lead in whatever sphere they've been given. In fact, author Robert Lewis has a great quote about men as leaders. He says, A man accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and lives for the greater reward. Lead well. Fourth is the category of warrior. In other words, men need a a cause bigger than themselves to live for. Uh, Tyson notes, Sadly, most men don't have a cause And what do they do instead? Often we're we're engaged in things like video games for long hours after a That's the appeal of it, right? There's a cause there. But we're called to fight for the truth in whatever sphere that we are called into. Fifth is the category of brother. In other words, men need to have friendships with other men. They need a community, a band of brothers. Now, as we age, this gets more and more difficult, but we need it. And then finally, there's the category of wise man, Our culture is filled with fools. We need men who learn how to become wise and navigate the complex terrain before them. We need to be wise in relationships, wise in how we manage money, wise in how we raise children, and so much more. We need men who are able to discern the scriptural truths from the secular lies. John Tyson offers this as a summary. He says, what does our culture tell us? Life should be easy, you're important, your life is about you, you should try to control everything, and you can live forever. Forever. As a result, all of the emphasis on the self and self-fulfillment produces an extended adolescence where men never grow up to reach their full redemptive potential. Do you want to reach your full Redemptive potential? Do you feel that, that push and that pull of the secular and the scriptural views of manhood in your life? See, on his deathbed, David's final word was what? Take courage, show yourself a man. What does it mean? Well, look at how David qualifies the statement in verse three. He says, You got to keep charge. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So he says, if you want to be a man, you walk in God's ways, you keep his commandments and law, you tell people about what he's done, and then you prosper. After 40 years of being king, this is what David's learned. And every time he's not honored God, he's like, it really hasn't gone well for me. It hasn't gone great. It takes courage to follow God, both back then and today. It takes courage. A true man honors God in everything David says. And then he continues. He says, We do this that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your son pays close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So again, we learn that David is, again, thinking about God's promise uh, from 2 Samuel 7. David wants his legacy to continue. Israel needs a good king. He wants Solomon to learn from his mistakes, and he wants him to pass on this message. Now, I want to point out that David begins first with spiritual advice to his son. What's the challenge? Honor God in everything, in everything he says, Now we can give our kids good life skills. Like we can teach them how to how to throw a baseball, how to drive a car, how to balance a checkbook. But what is most important? Love God in everything you do. It needs to be all of your life. It's not we go to church on Sunday and that's when we're spiritual. It's and then the rest of the week we do other things. No, it's everything. That's what he's getting at here. That's, that's David's heart. That's what he said in private to his. Son And the rest of David's speech now shows us the push and pull of this this secular and scriptural idea. So look at what he does. He moves on from the spiritual to affairs of the state. Verse five, he says to Solomon, moreover, you also know about Joab, what he did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner and Amasa, whom he killed. Now pause. I find this part of David's life so humbling and intriguing. Because you read this last part and you say, he starts with Scripture, but he doesn't end there. Right? He, instead, he ends by giving Solomon political advice. First, he, he's sitting there saying, you know what, Solomon? You remember that? You remember Joab right over there? You know, he was David's general. He was the guy that got that letter about Uriah. So Joab has dirt on David, right? Joab also was this ruthless political figure who's brutally killed people without David knowing. In, in 2 Samuel 20, which we didn't, we didn't look at, Joab cuts Amasa's stomach wide open, murders him, right? Leaves him for dead. David knew at this point in his life what Joab did, and now he says, you know what, this guy Joab, he's a problem, He's afraid that he's going to undermine Solomon. And so here is David's advice to Solomon. He says, Act therefore, verse 6, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. (laughs) He says, In other words, Solomon, you know, do what you want, but I think you should kill that guy. (laughs) You can laugh at this. This Now, again, David does that good job of starting with spiritual advice, but he ends his life with this political advice. And again, I've always found this interesting that David ends by telling his son to kill his political enemies, and not just Joab. He continues, verse 8 and 9, he says, and remember Shemiah, he cursed me with a terrible curse when I was fleeing. When he came down to me at the Jordan River, I swore by the Lord I wouldn't kill him. But that oath does not make him innocent. Now, during Absalom's rebellion, which we talked about last week, uh, Shimei was trying to assault David, and in 2 Samuel 19, he asks David's forgiveness, and David spares him. But he, this guy is from the house of Saul, and David is concerned that he's going to challenge Solomon for the throne. And so here is David's advice to Solomon. Again, he says, you are a wise man, and you know how to arrange a bloody death for him. David kind of sounds like a mob boss here, right? Or or some secret CIA covert operative, right? He says, Solomon, you're wise. Make sure he dies and make sure there's a lot of blood. And here's what's crazy. That's it? Literally, this was the last word of David. Make sure you arrange a bloody death for your political enemy. You say, "What? what? What are we supposed to do with this private advice? First, he says, honor God in everything. Then he says, kill your enemies and make sure there's a lot of blood. What in, what in the world? Like, what a complicated figure. Commentator Richard Phillips observes this. He says, when David directed Solomon to murder all his rivals and begin his reign with a sword bathed in blood, he left a legacy not only of principle, but also of unbelieving pragmatism not merely of faith and reliance on God, but also of fleshly self-reliance and worldly use of power. What a great summary of David's life and his last words. Now, some people will argue that David is advising Solomon to do what he should have done. Uh, the king is supposed to bring God's justice here on earth, but Joab and shimei they, they committed capital crimes. They should die. But it just it seems so pragmatic and self-serving. And that's the tension that we talked about at the beginning of this message. Uh, David's final public words were this, rule justly and fear God. David tells Solomon in private, honor God, but take matters into your own hands. It seems like David is a hypocrite. What do we do with this? Well, I think these Old Testament characters are here to show us the sin and proclivity that we all have. And I hope throughout this series you haven't heard me or Pastor Dave say, do everything David did, he's perfect. No. David got some things right, David got some things wrong. He honored God sometimes, uh, other times he sinned, which seems just, it seems just like us. God calls David and us to follow him with all that we are. And the only way we can make our public words and our private words align is by clinging to the final word. Now, what is that? What's the final word? 1 Kings 2.10 records David's death. We read this. It says, Then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. David had reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. So the greatest king in the history of Israel is dead. He had his chance to offer last words And I'm sure his funeral was huge, and it was filled with mourning and processionals leading to his burial. He had 40 years of record. He got some things right. He got some things wrong. But we're told in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, 36, that David served the purpose of God in his generation. In other words, God used David because he uses broken people. Why? Because God has a greater purpose. And right after David's death, we read this. It says in verse 12 So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And that verse right there is a testament of how God's purposes cannot be thwarted by our sin. Solomon was the son of David and Bathsheba. God made a promise to David his dynasty would be established. God told David he was not going to build the temple, Solomon would. God's son, David's son, would continue ruling. And his last words to Solomon, David was concerned about his legacy. And what he needed to realize, and what we all need to realize, is that sometimes our greatest legacy is who we leave behind. So who are you influencing right now? What message are you passing on? Because our final words are not the end. If we pass on the message God has called us to pass on, our words can make an impact not just in our generation, but beyond. And ultimately, God is the one who will have the final word in our lives. Because what have we learned here? God preserved David's line through Solomon. But more than that, God continues to preserve the line until he sends a king who will deliver the final word on the cross. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us about Jesus, God's son, the heir of David's throne? He says he came to earth to secure God's covenant for us. Hebrews twelve twenty four says that Jesus' blood on the cross speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And what is that better word? That's been the story that God has been telling through David's life. David sinned. He spilt a lot of blood. How could God secure his line? How could a just God forgive sin? Because God himself was willing to spill his own blood. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the final word that God speaks over us. And one day when we go before the throne of our true king, all we can plead is the final word of the blood of Jesus. That David may have been king on earth for a time, but all earthly kings die. Jesus Christ, our true king, died on a cross, but he rose from the dead. And Jesus' death brings about the possibility of resurrection in our lives. And because of that resurrection power, we have the ability to live well and bring our private words and our public words into alignment. And if you're a Christian here today, you have the ability to live a life honoring to God because of God's indwelling Holy Spirit and the final word of Christ's finished work on the cross. It is finished, he said. And that amazing, amazing truth should cause us to fall on our knees and cry out, all hail King Jesus. And so our series is done. King David is passed on, but don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking this series was ultimately about him. It's really about God, and it's about you, and it's about me. Because as we wrap up today, I want to ask you the real question of this series. Do you believe you need a king? Do you believe you need a king? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on stage. They have one, one last song for us to sing. And as they come, I just want to say, maybe, maybe you've been listening to this series, and you found the life of this ancient Near Eastern king just really fascinating Like David, he's got a really interesting life. But it's not really about him. It's about you. Are you willing to surrender your life fully to the true king who will come from David's line, Jesus Christ? Can you hear the final words that he declares on the cross? It is finished That your life right now may feel chaotic and just as up and down as David's life. Maybe you resonated with his challenges. That's why you love the series. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you today, give your life completely to Jesus. When you bring your whole life under the reign of Jesus Christ, he takes you from sorrow to joy. He takes you from chaos to order. He takes you from death to resurrection. May the cry of our hearts be, all hail the true king, Jesus. And God made a way for that redeemer by raising up King David. What are we told about David when we meet him back in 1 Samuel 16? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looked at David's heart. He looks at my heart. He looks at your heart. And David, at his core, sought after God's heart. He chased after it. He wrote songs about it. He sought to live it, although not perfectly. When you surrender to Jesus, you start chasing after God. Are you chasing after his heart today? And that's the question I've been asking myself throughout the series. It's the question to ask every single day. It's the only thing that matters Because when you commit your life to chasing after God's heart, then your public and your private life come into alignment. When you chase after God's heart, you're more aware of the reality that you need a king. We need a king who will rule us in love and justice and power. We need a perfect prophet, priest, and king who can show us the way to live and to love. And when he influences our life, when he he empowers our life, Our final words will have more weight. And so may our refrain always and ever be, all hail King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this series, oh God. Thank you for uh, those that have been with us, those that might have been here for the first time. Uh, Lord, I pray. Holy Spirit that you would impress on our hearts right now our need for you to rule us because you love us and you care for us and ultimately you bring about flourishing in this world. You are the king. Salvation comes from you. Thank you for what we've learned through David, but ultimately thank you for the sacrifice of our true king, Jesus Christ. Amen.